0: all right guys let's go ahead and uh, come together before we officially start um just like to make an announcement i'll be making it during the service as well that uh, these wonderful televisions that we have uh need operators right so uh you know one very useful means of taking advantage of this technology is to be able to project some things to aid you in understanding what we're studying so for example today i could have had a PowerPoint displayed for us to follow. Um, I'm not quite there yet, but uh, someone to be back and clicks. And for those of you that are like, wow, this is so weird and new, hang on a second. Evangelical churches, for a long time, they had uh, the overhead projectors with people. So we're we're just looking for the overhead people. Some of you might have been the overhead people (laughs) back in the day. Um, So that's uh, something to consider, please. Well, that I'm sure, maybe. All right, well, to our subject proper, um, welcome to today's uh, Lord's Day. We're going to be looking at the confession of faith. We're going to be studying the last chapter of the confession of faith, but actually we're a little bit out of order due to scheduling issues for me. Uh, uh, I'm teaching this now. Emmanuel will be teaching uh, the confession chapter 32 next week, okay? But let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you know the end from the beginning. There's no surprises for you, and that, Father, you work out all your holy will. And, Father, as we consider our own lives, our conversion, our uh, reception of the sacraments, our hearing the word and responding in faith, all of these things, Lord, they speak of your goodness to us as we've tasted and seen that you are good Father, be with us this day as we examine your word, and we consider this topic of the final judgment, the last day. Lord, it's a heavy topic. We pray that you'd help us to be faithful to your word, that you would help us to give you praise, honor, and glory for all that you are. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I, if you, as you walked in, there were handouts back there, and basically, and maybe go grab one, um, The handouts, it's a a photocopy of uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 33. has three sections. Um, I highly uh, encourage uh, you to look at the PCA's website. Our denomination has a really good uh, rendition of the Confession of Faith. Uh, To be honest, it's not usually the first website I look at, wink, wink. But... um, in this case, it is really awesome. The scripture texts are right there. I, I cut and pasted uh, from them. So th- that's uh, the confession on uh, chapter 33. I'd, I'd strongly encourage you to take advantage. of That's a wonderful presentation of the confession. Because if you're like me, sometimes we can get lazy when we look at uh, proof texts and we'll say, ah, it's John 6. I kind of know what's there. Maybe it's just me. But the proof texts are right there, and that aids you in your study of the Scriptures. So, here we go. Uh, Confession of Faith 33, of the Last Judgment. Uh, now, today's topic is awesome, and I mean awesome in the traditional sense full of awe and wonder and fear, but also awesome in the sense of 1980s awesome dude, like really cool. Now, of course, it depends what party you're in, whether it's awesome Although it's true of both parties, it'll be an awesome and dreadful day. But there's another party that it'll be a party, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb will ensue. It will be awesome, unbelievably glorious. But we need to look at both of these categories. God is a God who will no wise clear the guilty. But also it is uh, awesome in the sense of being amazingly great for those who are found in Christ. So 33 one. God hath appointed a day wherein He will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father. In this day, not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give account for their thoughts, words and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, as I was preparing this study and looking at this portion in particular, I was struck by how very, very Catholic and vanilla this phrase is. When I say Catholic, I mean lowercase c. This is the the message of the universal church uh, in her confessional documents from at least the second century on. Consider this. The creedal and confessional language attesting to Jesus Christ as judge at the end of the age. The Apostles' Creed. That's the second, you know, you could find its earliest iteration in the second century. It was called uh, the rule of faith, and then it kind of gets transferred into the Roman symbol. And then, as we know it today, probably third or fourth century, we call it the Apostles' Creed. This has been universally confessed by the church for centuries. The Apostles' Creed says... He, referring to the King Jesus, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. The Nicene Creed in 325 A.D. He, Jesus, will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The Athanasian Creed, 5th century. He ascended into heaven. He sitteth at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the quick, those who have been made alive by the Spirit, and the dead, those who persist in unbelief. At whose coming all men will rise again with their bodies and shall give account for their own works. And they, shall, they that have done good shall go into everlasting life, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith which, except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved." It's interesting to note that in the first three or four centuries of the church, there's a lot of argument about Christ's person and work. Who is Jesus? What has he done, right? There's no fudging about with this point of doctrine. There is a last day. King Jesus will be the judge of all of humanity. That's what the church says all branches of christianity have historically affirmed this great biblical truth there is a last day a day of judgment and christ will judge for our uh uh, you know timeline obviously not terribly specific and in my view you can't get too specific for it Uh, i'm not a big fan of being too specific on beginning of human origins and jesus tells us pretty clearly there's no clear one for this one so i'm on pretty good ground for at least half of this This is the present evil age. This is from the fall. This is what the Apostle Paul calls this age where sin and frustration, the world under the curse, right? Now, of course, there's going to be a last day. And on that last day, there's going to be a general resurrection and a judgment. And there is this age to come. I'm not much of a math guy, but I'm just representing the age to come with a couple of those eights on their sides, the lazy eights, right? The infinity symbol, right? Um the age to come will be an infinite age. And it's telling us in all of these creedal confessions that there's a last day, a general resurrection, and there will be a judgment, and Jesus is the judge. Now, we begin actually unpacking this theme of judgment in our last two uh, discussions on the Shorter Catechism. When we looked at Shorter Catechism number one, we, uh, I tried to make the argument that Shorter Catechism number one front loads the system of doctrine for the uh, Westminster confession. And uh, so we started unpacking some of the biblical data on Shorter Catechism 1, specifically as it pertained to man's chief end of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. And we focused on the forever part, right? We noted that all of creation glorifies God in some way. As it concerns humanity, all humanity glorifies God actively or passively, either as the redeemed or the damned. Incidentally, uh, we ought to be careful when we use that word, damn. I know in vernacular it's become common. We like to use it as salt and pepper to illustrate what we're talking about, and even as Christians, and I'm guilty here, uh, especially when working on cars that are being frustrating and bolts won't come off. It's a choice word sometimes. But, beloved, we need to be very wise that understanding that damning is something that is the prerogative of God alone. He alone has the ontological, the nature, the the being power to damn anything. So we should really watch our tongues. I should watch my tongue because we can't damn anything. That is God's business. That ability to damn today, we shall see, is actually a very frightful thing. When we examined what it means to glorify God, we noted that humanity is to reflect God's glory both statively in terms of what we are and actively in terms of what we do. We're to reflect God's glory both as a noun and a verb, we said. We're to be like God in who we are and act like God in what we do. We saw Adam in the garden was to do just that in his charge to keep the garden and to tend it. He was to be like God and act like God. Yet when faced with an evil encounter with Satan... It's not what he does, is it? When faced with an opportunity to guard the garden, we see that rather than exercise judgment, rather than cast this slithery beast out of the garden, he adopts Satan's viewpoint. He stopped thinking God's thoughts after him. He interpreted reality according to His view, which was the evil one's view. They adopted a spirit of autonomy. I will rule myself. I know these things. Who are you? You're not the boss of me, as every three-year-old says. And of course, we know that appears to be for Adam and Eve's everlasting ruin. They sinned by thinking and acting out of accord with their creator God. They didn't exercise judgment on this serpent, no, But the good news for us is that just as there is a first day and a first Adam, there's a last day and there's a last Adam. And that's what we'll be looking at today. The Lord Jesus, in his person and work, establishes himself as the faithful son. And as the faithful son, the faithful second Adam, the father gives his approbation. The father approves of Jesus. Pay attention to these texts which support the idea of Jesus as the last Adam being uh, the one with whom the Father is well pleased. At his baptism, you know, we see the Spirit descend, we see the Son in his person, we hear the Father from heaven, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. At the transfiguration, right, Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah, and there's glowing and all that, the father says, this is my son with whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the law and the prophets disappear. Listen to Christ. The father approves of him because Jesus, of course, sees Satan's lies for what they are. And Jesus judges Satan rightly, unlike Adam. When Jesus is face to face with Satan in the wilderness during the period of temptation, Jesus fights him. Jesus does not give in. Jesus does not adopt Satan's strategy for interpreting reality. Jesus is the faithful son. Jesus even judges Satan rightly when Peter comes to, uh, when Satan comes to him through human actors like Peter, the one that Jesus says is going to be a rock, right? Uh, Peter turns to Jesus and says, Lord, may it never be that you go to the cross. You're going to sideline like all the studies we've done on the political future of you and Israel. It's going to screw things up royally. Jesus looks at him and he says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus understands and Jesus judges Satan and his works through all of his minions, knowing or unknowingly. Jesus judges his relationship with both his father and Satan rightly in John 12. John 12, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Another said, An angel spoken to him. Jesus answered, That voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, of course, Jesus judging all things rightly does what Adam fails to do. And Jesus, of course, casts Satan out by his victory over him at the cross. It's there at the cross when that promise of the early gospel takes place. It's there that Satan's head is crushed. All that hell would be for the believer is summarily extinguished in his eternal nature on the cross as he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Apostle Paul, who richly unpacks this theme of the two Adams in both Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, is the same Apostle Paul who declares in Acts chapter 17... The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Beloved, it is this Jesus, the victorious second Adam, who will judge the world in righteousness. Jesus, in his resurrected glory, announces that all authority in heaven and earth are granted to him, and he commands his church to go and ransack Satan's goods. People created in the image of God, but nonetheless are children of Satan. Jesus commands his church to go and ransack Satan's storehouse, to go about the earth to the four corners, and to reclaim trophies for the lamb by making disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey The gospel of God Jesus unpacks this further in John 5 22 for the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son now note for a second not only have we established that uh, you know we have the right judge and he gives the right judgment I always do that I don't think there should be an e there is that right we have the right judge and he does the right judgment Personally for himself, but also for his people and we of course will see for all time for all eternity for all creatures Note however the extent of this victorious risen Christ's judgment Apostate angels it states those who fell commonly we call them demons, right? And all humans who have ever lived at any time they will have their thoughts words in deeds scrutinized. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due, for us, what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're talking about that day, that final day, right? We call this the general resurrection because there's no distinction in that regard. God will raise the rotting carcasses of everybody. He will. He who made Adam from the dust of the earth is perfectly able to resurrect us whether we are the victim of some heinous crime and have an unmarked grave and no one will ever know. He has the power to raise us whether we get cremated, whether we're put in the most fancy box, God reserves that power alone, and he will do so. But as we rise, and we all will rise, we will rise for this judge. There will be no uh, people who are seated and saying, I can't stand out of disrespect for this one. Now, they will disrespect him and hate him, but they will stand. Some of us will jump for joy. But all will rise for this judge so that they can bend the knee and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This last judgment will be awesome in scope. There will be no hiding. God and everybody will witness this tribunal. God and everybody, simultaneously, all together. Nothing will be hidden from this judge. There will be no blaming others, whether family or friend will avail. Well, Lord, you see, I was born in this situation. Well, Lord, you see, He did this to me. All of that will be to no avail. No high-dollar lawyer will find any loopholes. No absent-minded law clerk will uh, fail to provide information on due process. There will be no legal technicalities. Pure justice will be the principle, and it will be had. Furthermore, no double jeopardy will take place. I'm not talking about that beloved American icon of a game, uh, Jeopardy. But double jeopardy, of course, is the legal idea. And Josh, fix me if I'm wrong. uh, the, The idea that no one should be tried twice for the same crime. Either to be tried again and found guilty for a crime you've already paid for, or to pay for a crime that you've been found innocent of. And of course... The reference here is the work of Jesus. There is no such thing where Christ dies and atones for the sins of a person and then that person is cast into hell. That is a non-thing. It is not. Christ pays for the sins of his elect and they're paid for. But we'll see that that those elect people, those who bend the knee to King Jesus willingly, uh, are different We'll get to that in a bit. As Protestants who believe in justification by faith, obviously at this point we're asking some questions. Well, what is this final judgment, right? Uh, Emmanuel next week will deal with, you know, I don't know. We could be any of these green dots along this timeline. We will have a personal judgment. You know, scripture says that it's appointed for man once to die in Hebrews and then to face the judgment. We're going to kick off at some point. All of us have a terminal disease, right? All of us are going to die at some point. We don't know when it is, but it's going to be different, right? Um, I just lost track of mine. That's why I need notes. Um, this idea um, is certainly when we die whenever that is, this is person A, there's a judgment and we will go to heaven or hell. Emmanuel will unpack this, okay? Now, the point that our passage is making today, or our point in the confession is, there will be a day that those people who've been, their spirits are torn apart from their body in a most violent, unnatural way, but nonetheless, their spirits are glorified in heaven. Those people, there will be a day when their body will be resurrected, when they'll be slapped together, body and soul, whole is one again. And of course we know, and let's go with some fun colors, uh, you know, there's there's hell, right? Same thing. There's going to be a resurrection for them, right? They will be slapped together. Uh, I could have used better language. Okay. So as Protestants have a very high appreciation for... um, Never mind. Uh, I have a very high appreciation for the doctrine of justification by faith because it is all over in Romans. Take Paul, for example, in Romans 1 through 4. He basically talks about justification by works up to 1, 3, ish or so, and then he talks about justification by faith. And lots of people wonder what's going on here. Uh, well, what's going on here is the idea that, yes, there will be a judgment according to works. But what I want you to see is that judgment according to works that will happen at the last day, which Scripture universally testifies to, and our creedal confirmation, our creeds all confirm, uh, it doesn't have anything to do with this land. It has nothing to do with personal eschatology in terms of whether heaven or hell will be your final home. Rather, what it is, is a testimony to what sort of people are these that God has redeemed? What sort of lives do they live Is there a confirmation, right? And this is, of course, the category of fruit. God will see our fruit on the last day. Now, that fruit isn't what gets you into heaven initially. It's not what keeps you in heaven. But God has done a work, right? And I was thinking about this today. We'll get to the Matthew 25 passage, but it's interesting when the saints are uh, in heaven and, and God is saying, well, hey, enter into that abode that we've made for, you know, for you. They ask, when when did I give you a drink of water or do anything for you? The saints are fundamentally dumbfounded about this. I didn't do that, Lord, but great. It's because our right hand should not know what our left hand is doing. We've been given a new nature. There's a call that we have, and we need to live out of that nature and act accordingly. And so much so that we're like, you know, we are not supposed to be actuaries. I don't know if that's the right word. We're not supposed to be bean counters. People are all, oh, I've done, I think I'm feeling pretty good, right? No. The last day will be God confirming the work that he's done in us. There's nothing in this judgment according to our works that speaks meritoriously of getting anyone into the kingdom. If we read it that way, we're reading into the text, whether in the confession or the Bible. Entrance in the kingdom is by grace through faith from first to last. Before the general resurrection, the souls of the saints will be in heaven already. The confession reflecting Scripture speaks about being judged according to what one has done in the body after the general resurrection. What one's done in the body at the general resurrection we know what the works of the flesh are and they're obvious and we know of course existentially that they merit eternal death so what do believers works do for them if you guys want to knock yourself out and read a paper uh lee irons wrote a paper entitled romans 2:13 is paul coherent here's a quote from that essay um paul does not discard the principle of final judgment but reappropriates it within the new framework of grace in which God will graciously accept our imperfect, spirit-wrought obedience as truly good in his sight, though not as the basis of deliverance from the wrath to come. Even after the revelation of the gospel, it's still true that there will be a day of judgment and that God will look for good works from his people as the evidence of the genuineness of their faith. Truth be told, we could have a Bible study on that topic, and we could plumb the depths of that, but I ain't the guy for it today. Section 2, Confession of Faith, Section 2. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of His mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of His justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive the fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who do not know God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Notice the language. It speaks of the end. The end of God's appointing this day we can understand end both as a goal and a finishing point. We addressed this when we looked at Shorter Catechism number one when we discussed the eternal nature of man's chief end, namely to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We argued that humanity glorifies God best when they're glorified. Since I've already touched on that recently, I won't go into detail on man's heavenly end. But I want you to notice that the end spoken of here in 33 is broader than that that was addressed in Shorter Catechism number one. Shorter Catechism, of course, is very biased. It's focusing on the enjoyment of the believers with God forever. The Confession, of course, incorporates a different people in its addressing of the task, uh, topic. The goal of this last day, where Christ shall judge the quick and the dead, to steal the language from the Athanasian Creed, is to manifest his mercy in the redeemed and his justice in the reprobate. Man's final eschatology is written really large here. Now, when I use eschatology, we often want to start quibbling about our pet theologies. Um, you know, is it postmillennial, premillennial, amillennial? Uh, well, there's no quibbling about different eschatological positions. There's no quibbling about So-called intermediate states of the soul, whether it's purgatory or soul sleep, there's none of that. It's clear-cut in this life, which is preparation for the next life. Our true life actually begins here. We fret so much about this, and certainly we're called to be faithful. Certainly we're called to be moral, all that. Yes, yes, yes. But true life starts here. When we die, eternity forward will make this look as though nothing. However, what we do with this life is important. It's terribly important. Terrifyingly important. Man's final eschatology. Eschatology is written large here. So all this quibbling about different eschatologies or possibilities of intermediate states of the soul will be of no use on that final day. It's clear-cut. There were two paths in this present evil age, The wide path that leads to destruction and the narrow path that leads to eternal life, hell and heaven. What path you did follow in the days God graciously, what path did you follow in the days that God graciously gave you on earth? Even accounting for differences in Christian traditions, these are the final outcomes in all orthodox traditions, heaven and hell. That's it. Now, I know some will say, well, Catholics believe in purgatory. Well, purgatory gives way to heaven eventually in their scheme. The the end for the Catholic is heaven. Those that are in purgatory are going to make it, right? It's a uh, simultaneously wonderful and awful doctrine, right, to sort of let you live in malaise and say, I got wet and therefore I'm going to make it someday. Someday someone's going to carry that football over the line, so to speak. Well, we'll see today that Jesus' call to watch and pray should make that a fearful position besides the fact that it's wrong. Perhaps Luther's opinion that soul sleep would be another idea, right? Luther's soul sleep, even them, they must awake for a final judgment. So in the big scheme, the entire Christian church agrees at the end, there's heaven and there's hell and that's it. At the end, at the last judgment so it comes down to what's it going to be heaven or hell hell or heaven self-sufficiency or repentance toward god and faith in god now let's be honest talk of hell has fallen on hard times Uh, if god were an elected official uh, we would get rid of this idea pretty quickly i believe if he was subject to the principles of democracy, we would take surveys to discover its popularity and find out that it's not polling so well, and we would yank that one. That's not a good platform. Get off that one. You're not going to get reelected, God. Perhaps we'd have a focus group hosted by Oprah in 1987 with Donald Trump as a uh, guest, which actually happened quite a bit, and it's always struck me how similar they are in terms of this the gospel of positive thinking, right? The gospel of positive thinking. Maybe the power of positive thinking would affect all necessary changes in life. Hell wouldn't be necessary. Surely we would amend hell out of existence. We would see that it was annihilated. And for those of you that are still clinging to the doctrine of hell as I speak, what are you? A bunch of masochists? You get excited about the idea that God's going to punish people for their sins? Why would you believe that? Well, at first glance, if what the Bible teaches were simply a matter of personal preference, well, then it's exactly what we might do. It's exactly what we might do. As a matter of fact, it's exactly what many people do do. I don't like that that's uncomfortable. How could you believe that? Let me tailor make a God in my own image. And that is the history of humanity in terms of religion again and again. Wash, rinse, repeat. But if God is God and man is man, that is, if God is the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, transcendent creator who sits outside of creator, creation and we are finite and mortal and mutable, changeable, and we're his creation, then we have little choice but to bend the knee in submission to his word, his power, and his authority. And as we do so, we taste and we see that the Lord is good. Such is the case with hell. We believe this uncomfortable truth for no other reason than the Bible teaches it. It's not that we enjoy this, and quite frankly, to be honest, I would cut that one out of the book. But you will ruin the system of doctrine laid out in Scripture should you do that, and we'll look at that in a bit. In the last 150 years, it has become vogue to give lip service to Jesus. Oh, Jesus is this wonderful guy. He teaches us to turn the other cheek. It's Christian pacifism and all kinds of wonderful stuff. But then they'll go ahead and deny hell. Jesus, good, hell, bad. Well, the great leather-lunged Baptist apologist, Walter Martin, uh, he told a story of the evangelist R.A. Torrey. And R.A. Torrey uh, 30 years after graduating seminary, he meets a fellow seminarian, a guy by the name of George. He meets them on the street, and they have some small chit-chat. And, uh, you know, R.A. finally gets past the family and how you're doing, what you've done with the last 30 years. And he, he says, how's your theology, George? Do you still believe what we believed in seminary? And George says, well, Rube, I don't believe in hell anymore. R.A. Torrey took his finger and he stuck it in the man's chest right there on the street corner. And he says, there's indescribable sin in your life, George. And The man melted. He thought, I haven't seen you in 30 years. How do you know what sin I've done or haven't done? Torrey replied, he who can turn from preaching the doctrine of God's justice can only himself be frightened of it. And you wouldn't be frightened if there was not sin in your life, George. And there's sin in your life, and you're frightened, and you're saying, I just won't believe it anymore. But it's true. You know it's true. I know it's true, because Jesus says it's true. And this man, evidently, according to Martin's telling, uh, was shaking and weeping on the street corner in a matter of minutes. He was called back to that great truth, the great truth of what was going on at Calvary, the terrible price that god paid to save men from what their lack of the power of positive thinking their lack of constructing a political system which will meet felt needs no it's because of hell the terrible price that god paid to save men from hell now there's a mischaracterization and you hear this all the time in the culture that the Old Testament is fundamentally about blank and the New Testament is fundamentally about blank. God is a God of blank in the Old Testament and he's a God of blank in the New Testament. Fill in the blanks. Wrath and love, law and grace, right? And that's very common characterization. But try this on for size. Nobody speaks of or warns about hell like the Jesus of scripture. Ironically, you could argue that Jesus speaks more about hell than he talks about grace. Listen to this just quick summary, and I realize there's, for those struggling with this doctrine, so much more could be done. Jesus says it's the place of eternal torment, Luke 16:23, of unquenchable fire, Mark 9:43, the place where the worm does not die, Mark 9:48, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret, Mark 13:42 from which there's no return, even to warn our loved ones, Luke sixteen nineteen 19-31. He calls this place hell, the outer darkness, comparing it to Gehenna, which was a trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem, where rubbish was burned and maggots abounded. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven, and he describes it more vividly. Now, I might take up this, by the way, this is a quote from uh, a writer named Leslie Schmucker, my little summary of those passages certainly jesus talks about halmore but i think that by his word indeed ministry he certainly illustrates the grace of god and showing what the kingdom is like so i might be nitpicky on that all of his healings are showing the kingdom is the place where the blind receive their sight where the deaf can hear where those that are lame walk these are all forward-looking pictures of what that last day, final resurrection will be like. God's creation will be all good. But that's not what we're talking about today. Well, it is. Uh, I keep wanting to say larger catechism. Confession of Faith, 33.3. Text says, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men, that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful, because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. So we're looking at this idea of the last day as a deterrent, perhaps deterrent for crime, but it's a deterrent, right? Uh, This is basically what Calvin called the second use of the law. That's the idea that the law acts as a curb to keep us from going off the rails, to keep us from being as wicked as we could be, from keeping total depravity becoming what people assume it means, right? Total depravity is not that we're as wicked as we could be means that we're totally depraved in our whole being, everything about us, but we're not as wicked as we could be. God in his grace has restrained our wickedness one way through his law, one way through the threat of final judgment. But even then, we cast that idea off in the culture. So it serves a civil use. Uh, Lutheran theologian Rod Rosenblatt uh, refers to this aspect of the law as the aspect that keeps us from stealing each other's wives and speedboats. I've always thought that was an interesting way of putting it. So it serves a civil use. Although not necessarily accurate, the nagging, you'll go to hell for that, from a nosy neighbor might have served a useful function in our youth, right? It also might be violating the third commandment because at the end of the day, uh, you don't know exactly which sin I'm going to hell for. And yeah, okay. More importantly, for the godly, it's a great consolation. Second Peter, the message is, hold on a little longer, little flock. God has rescued his people in the past. He knows how to rescue you too. Second Peter 3 says, 3, 8 and following, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but rather he's patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and, with hev- and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these... Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Lastly, notice the confession talks about uh, the fact that nobody knows the day or the hour and that we basically need to keep watching and keep waiting and be faithful. Nobody knows the day or hour of their own death or the second coming of the Son of Man in glory. For this reason, we must watch and pray. We keep our wicks trimmed, and we keep our oil full. We eagerly anticipate the coming of our Lord. Now, this is interesting. When I lived in Korea, uh, there was a young lady that I was fond of seeing often in a different city, and uh, late at night, I might have broken some speed limits. I have evidence that I did. They would have cameras, speed traps, these cameras, and they would be posted, and probably about 12 foot in the sky, and they they very... Very easy to see. They would also put signs out in one meter, in one kilometer. There's going to be a traffic signal. And so what do people do? What did I do? Mash the throttle. Go as fast as you can. See that sign? Slow down. Right? All day. There's none of that in the kingdom. Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour. There's no signposts telling you. Good luck on trying to read them. I know in the history of the church, we're saying, oh, we got that, right? Right? Maybe if you're a hyper preterist, you look and you say, Well, I can figure out when the day was. I can just look at Josephus. A history book will tell me. If you're a dispensationalist, look at the newspaper, we don't have newspapers anymore, but look at whatever you look at through your to get your news. That's how you're gonna find out the end coming. Jesus says there is no man who knows the day or the hour, not even him in his condescension. The Bible calls on us to watch and pray, always trusting, always hoping, always ready. So beloved, today could be the day, could be your personal termination and you awake in heavenly glory, anxiously awaiting the union of your body and soul again in glorified joy. Or it could be the day where had you not bowed the knee to King Jesus, that hell is your eternal reality. Today could be the day that the blessed Redeemer comes on clouds of glory and makes every wrong right has that vindication publicly in front of God and everybody where everybody sees Hitler have to confess for his sins. Where everyone sees, yes, he is receiving the due justice for what he did. That is a fearful and awesome day. Flee to the Savior. The day, of course, is today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. There's a ton more that could be said, but uh, let's close in prayer. Father, these are heavy realities, but how we thank you that you don't ask us to do anything you haven't done yourself, that your son has done the heavy lifting of the work of redemption for us, that he has called upon every tribe and tongue and nation to repent and believe the gospel, make us faithful servants of your word that we might be effective to that end. We pray, Father, you draw in your people from the four corners of the earth, men and women, boys and girls, that bow the knee to King Jesus willingly, for it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of our God who's a consuming fire. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.